I saw a picture on Facebook recently that said that after the three wise men came and presented their gifts, the three wiser women came and presented theirs. And I can't remember what the third one is, but I think it was something like diapers, formula, and casseroles for the week. Something to that effect. Three gifts. Epiphany. There's a lot of things going on here. Um, but I want to start by reminding us of our gospel writer and who he is. All right, we're listening to Matthew's gospel. Right? Year A for this whole liturgical year, we'll be hearing from Matthew. But every year for Epiphany, we hear from, from Matthew. And Matthew's concerned with basically like the Jewish origins of salvation. He's writing specifically for a Jewish audience. So we have to keep that in mind. He's very much concerned with fulfillment of prophecy. There's a lot of prophecies we've been hearing through Advent, with Christmas, and he's kind of tying all these things together and showing them how, like, everything comes with Christ. Everything is fulfilled with Christ. So I'd like to take a moment to go back to 250 B.C. The Greek scientist Archimedes, he discovers this theory of buoyancy, right? He steps in his bathtub and the water rises with his displacement and he says, Eureka! He has that epiphany. It's a realization. It's kind of like the aha moment. That's what we can consider an epiphany. You know, you realize something sharply. And if you look at the dictionary, Merriam-Webster says an epiphany can be a sudden manifestation, an illuminating discovery, or a striking realization. And that's a perfect description of what we're seeing today. So what's the striking realization, you know? Yeah, Christ came from the nativity. We celebrated that about a week and a half ago. Uh, but what we're looking at today is more of his identity and his mission. What has he come to do? Who is he? And we heard in the gospel reading the, the passage, this is the one to come shepherd Israel. Um, and at the very beginning of Advent, you might not know this, but in the office of readings, in the liturgy of the hours, there's a responsory. It's kind of like the responsorial psalm. And the very first one for Advent is basically asking the question, tell us. Art thou he that should come to reign over thy people Israel? And then in the gospel reading today, we get the answer, yes, this is he. So this is kind of this relationship between prophecy and fulfillment from Matthew. So keep that in mind. So we have to look at what's happening in the readings. We don't get a lot of the details, and there's a lot of details in this reading, in this gospel. But we have to look at the bigger context, all right? Um, this is why we spend a lot of money for me to go to school, as Father says. We're seeing if, if we're getting our money's worth, right? So let's look at, at some of the details. All right, so who's Herod? All right, Herod's a puppet king. He's not really the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, all right? Because the prophecy was always that the heir of, of Israel was always through David's line. It would come through Judah, and David was of Judah's line. Herod's not of any of those lines. Um, Herod is what we call an Idumean. Right, he's kind of like a, I guess, a half-Jew, a quasi-Jew. Um, his tribe is of the house of Esau, Edom. It goes back to Esau. If you know who Esau is, that's the brother of Jacob. Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And so Esau's kind of ostracized from the family, the very beginning of the covenant um, with Abraham and his descendants. So this is where Herod's coming from. He's not really the rightful heir. He's not even fully Jewish, all right? This is a big deal for Matthew, again, because he's talking to a Jewish audience, all right? So keep that in mind. So when Herod hears that, this term, that there's this new king of the Jews, he feels threatened because he's, in his mind, I'm the king of the Jews. 
You know, I'm the, the king who was appointed by Rome. I'm the one who, you know, I run this entire operation in this area. Someone's coming to depose me. And because he knows he's not from the rightful line. So he's concerned. And if we look at some of the documents, we see that Herod, he killed his own wife. He killed his own children. Anyone who threatened his power, he would kill them. He was paranoid. He was an extremely paranoid guy. And then we have these wise men. It's what the word magi literally means. It means wise men. If you want to kind of look at who they are, it's like Father said you know, at the beginning of Mass. They're not exactly kings, but they're nobility. You can kind of think of it that they're the same kind of class, this upper class, if you look back in the book of Daniel. The guys who are conspiring against Daniel, who get him thrown into the lion's den, these wise men, same kind of guys. They read, they read the stars. They're looking for signs. They try to interpret the signs of the times with the stars, um, which is sometimes successful, sometimes not. It really just depends on chance. But these guys, these wise men, they know the prophecies. These guys have heard, every, the word spreads through Jerusalem. Because remember, Israel's reputation kind of gets around. All right, this is God's chosen people. This is the, the small, kind of obscure community that God has led miraculously to this promised land, protected them, thrown them into exile, got them back out. So their reputation's out there. And so in all the places who've interacted with, with Israel, they know these prophecies. They know these stories. And so what's happening is that these wise men, they see the star. They see the signs. And so they know that this is the star of the, of the heir in the line of David. So that's what they're doing. They're coming and, and they want to, to pay him homage because these wise men have the epiphany. They have the aha moment, the realization of who Jesus is. They come and they find him. Even in their noble state, they come and they find this baby. We don't know for sure. We have in the manger scene, you know, we have the wise men here, but we don't know for sure if they were still in the manger. We don't exactly have an exact timeline of where Jesus and the rest of the Holy Family were when the Magi came. But they came and they found him, wherever that house was. They came and sought them out. And so what they're doing is they're coming to find the newborn king. They realize this is the one. And what do you do when you come to a king? You think of it in our times today. When dignitaries meet with each other, what do they do? They exchange gifts. Or normally what happens is the lesser of the ranks will give a gift to the, the higher rank. So that's what's happening here. They recognize the kingship of Christ. And so they come to bring him gifts that are due to him as king. So let's look at these three gifts. The gold. Just very simply a symbol of the kingship of Christ. And the point of, of the epiphany, like the realization itself, is the fact that Christ is coming to make salvation universal. All right, think of salvation history up to this point. You have the covenant with Abraham and with Isaac through their entire line. And it's this progressive revelation from one man to a family to an entire tribe. Okay? So what's happening is God's progressively revealing himself. And then now this is the moment. Now it's universal. And we hear in the responsorial psalm, all the nations on earth will adore you. The message is now for the whole world. That's what these magi represent. They represent the Gentile people coming and recognizing God for who he is. It's so powerful to think of that. People who, you know, were not of the tribe of Israel, who were not part of the chosen people, who could have easily felt spurned by God to say, well, if I'm not part of the people, I'm not going to serve you. They don't do that. No, instead they come, they recognize truth where it is, 
and they see Christ. They come and bring him gifts because as the gold represents, he's king. Frankincense, just like incense nowadays. Incense is offered with sacrifice. This goes back to the very beginning of the covenant. Offering incense with the sacrifices. This happened in the Jewish temple. We see it at mass most of the time on, on solemnities and feast days. And what this incense does, it's a representation of the prayers of the people rising up. But it's the priest who's using this incense. And so the incense, or the frankincense here, is showing that Christ is priest. He's king and he's priest. Now remember, again, who's Matthew writing to? The Jewish people. When they hear the word king and priest together, they automatically go back and think of somebody else. They think of Melchizedek in Genesis. Melchizedek was a king and priest, and he offers bread and wine. We've kind of seen these connections here with what Christ is going to come to do. Christ will come as king and priest and offers bread and wine, except this time he turns the bread and wine into his own body and blood. That's where we kind of get the myrrh from. The myrrh is a burial spice. So this is not exactly a happy gift. So, you know, I could, if you think about it, like the first two wise men, you have the gold and the frankincense. These two kind of make sense. These are kind of happier gifts, you know. But the myrrh, imagine if you're Mary and Joseph and a king comes and brings you burial spices for your child. What kind of statement is that to say that, you know, your child's going to die and that's going to be something very important to what he's come to do? Like, can you imagine that, those of you who are parents, if someone came and brought you burial spices right now for your child? You see what kind of statement they're making here? Wow. But that's a huge part of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Because not only is he the priest, he's also the sacrifice. He's, as we say, the sacerdos et hostia, the priest and the victim. That's what he's come to do. He's come to die. He's come to rule. He's come to offer sacrifice, and that sacrifice is himself. He's come to die. But what they don't hear now, what they'll hear later, is that there's the resurrection. All right? So they're kind of seeing this, though. There's a, a bit of a foreshadowing here with what the wise men bring. And it's all because they have that realization. All right? And that's the thing. It doesn't take, we shouldn't say it takes a, a magi or a rocket scientist to to realize who Jesus is, you know. I always said, you know, I, I say this all the time, God doesn't play games with us. When he's trying to reveal himself to us, he usually does it very clearly, all right? Look at the scriptures. The entire scripture is God's, basically his letter to us. It's him telling us how he wants us to live, how he wants us to know him, to come to love him and serve him. So it, it shouldn't really take a striking realization for us to see who Jesus is. We have it. We've had it for years. But sometimes we get complacent. It's easy to, to, to every year we have the same readings for the epiphany. They never change. Even with the lectionary cycle, we have the same readings. So are we just hearing these readings going through the motions? Or are we looking in the readings trying to find what does this mean? What does it mean that all flesh will come to the Lord? What does it mean that all the nations on earth will adore him? You know, what does it mean for us? That's probably one of the, the biggest questions of the epiphany. Does this change something in the way we live? Like, you know, are we able to come like the wise men did and find Jesus in a lowly place where we probably least expect him? Let's say he was in the manger. You know, if he was, can we come and find him in those places where we may not want to go? A smelly, stinky place. How far are we willing to go? These men came from across the entire Orient of Eurasia 
to find the Christ, to find the King. How far are we willing to go? It's so easy now, you know, when you think of trips even. Travel back then wasn't hop in your car and drive from, from um, you know, any of the neighboring territories to Jerusalem. They had to go by camel or by horse. How far are we willing to go? Can we do the same thing? Are we going to give up the things that we need to give up to come find the Christ? Are we going to be able to offer him our gifts? And that's what he wants most. Perhaps if there's any realization here we need to come to, it's what are the gifts that he's given us to give back to him? Because everything in salvation history is God initiating a relationship, giving us something so we can give it back in return. Because in giving it back in return, he prunes it. He helps it to grow. And everything he gives us is magnified. It becomes so much greater when we're able to take it, to have this sense of detachment to it, and give it right back to him. That's what the epiphany is about. So can we do that? Can we make the effort? Can we make the journey, even spiritually, to find him where he wants us to meet him, to find him in the lowly places? Sometimes we forget that Christ came as a baby. He came as an infant. An infant can't really go anywhere on his own. And he calls us to be childlike in the same way. But can we meet that child? Can we meet that baby where he is? Or do we make God do all of the work? So especially in this Christmas season, continue reflecting on Christ as a child. What did that look like? What does that mean? How can we model our lives off of Christ being that child? So in this world that seeks to replace this faith with knowledge, you know, we're called to be like these wise men. And they have eyes of faith, right? We're called to have the same thing, eyes of faith. We have to recognize Christ for who he is, and we have to present a sacrifice ourselves. Just like Christ was priest and victim, we have sacrifices to make, and we can sacrifice and offer ourselves to him and for others.